0: Captain Craig Section 1 by Edwin Arlington Robinson read for LibriVox.org by Subhash Chanda www.subhashsings.com Captain Craig 1. I doubt if ten men in all Tilbury town had ever shaken hands with Captain Craig or called him by his name or looked at him so curiously or so concernedly, as they had looked at ashes, but a few, say five or six of us, had found somehow the spark in him, and we had fanned it there, choked under like a jest in holy writ by Tilbury Prudence. He had lived his life, and he has shared with all of humankind, inveterate leave to fashion of himself by some resplendent metamorphosis, whatever he was not, And after time, when it had some sufficiently to pass, that he was going patch-clad through the streets, weak, dizzy, chilled and half-starved, he had laid some nerveless fingers on a prudent sleeve and told the sleeve in furtive confidence. Just how it was. My name is Captain Craig, he said, and I must eat. The sleeve moved on. And after it moved others, one or two, for Captain Craig, before the day was done, got back to the scant refuge of his bed and shivered into it without a curse, without a murmur even. He was cold and old and hungry, but the worst of it was a forlorn familiar consciousness that he had failed again. There was a time when he had fancied if worse came to worst and he could work no more, that he might beg, nor be the less of it, but when it came, To practice he found out that he had not the genius. It was that and that was all. Experience had made him to detect the blunder for his own like all the rest of him. There were no other men to blame. He was himself and he had lost the speed he started with and he was left behind. There was no mystery, no tragedy. And if they found him lying on his back, stone dead, there some sharp morning as they might. Well, once upon a time, there was a man, his were animal synchronic, if it pleased him. And he was right. There were no men to blame. There was just a false note in the Tilbury tune. A note that able-bodied men might sound, Hosanna's on while Captain Craig lay quiet. They might have made him sing by feeding him, till he should work again, but probably such yielding would have jeopardized the rhythm. They found it more melodious to shout, right on with unmolested adoration, to keep the tune as it had always been, to trust in God and let the captain starve. He must have understood that afterwards, when he had laid some fuel to the spark of him and oxidized it, for he laughed out loud and long at us to feel it burn, and then, for gratitude, made game for us. You are the resurrection and the life, he said. And I, the hymn, the Brahmin sings. O oh, Fuscus, and we will go no more a roving. We were not quite accuttered for a blast of any letter nonchalance like that. And some of us, the five or six of us, who found him out, were singularly struck. But soon there came assurance of his lips, like phrases out of some sweet instrument. Man's hand had never fitted that he felt. No penitential shame for what had come, no virtuous regret for what had been, but rather a joy to find it in his life, to be an outcast usher of the soul. For such as had good courage of the sun to pattern love. The captain had one chair, and on the bottom of it, like a king, for longer time than I dare chronicle, sat with an ancient ease and eulogized his opportunity. My friends got out, like brokers out of Arcady, but I may be for fascination of the thing, or may be for the larger humor of it, stayed listening, unwearied and unstung. When they were gone, the captain's tuneful ooze of rhetoric took on a change, He smiled at me and then continued earnestly. Your friends have had enough of it, but you, for a motive hardly vindicated yet, by prudence or by conscience have remained, and that is very good. For I have things to tell you, things that are not words alone, which are the ghosts of things, but something firmer. First, would I have you know, for every gift or sacrifice there are, or there may be, two kinds of gratitude, the sudden kind, We feel for what we take, the slower kind. We feel for what we give. Once we have learned, as much as this, we know the truth has been told over to the world a thousand times. But we have had no ears to listen yet. For more than fragments of it, we have heard a murmur now and then, an echo here and there, and we have made great music of it. And we have made innumerable books to please the unknown God. Time throws away, dead thousands of them, but the God that knows, no death denies not come, the books all count, the songs all count, and yet God's music has no modes; His language has no adjectives. You may be right, you may be wrong, said I, but what has all of this that you say now? This 19th century nirvana talk to do with you and me? The captain raised his hand and held it westward, where a patched and unwashed attic window filtered in. What barren light could reach us? And then said with a suave, complacent resonance, there shines the sun. Behold it! We go round and round, and wisdom comes to us with every word. We count throughout the circuit. We may say, the child is born. The boy becomes a man. The man does this and that, and the man goes. But having said it, we have not said much, not very much. Do I fancy, or you think, that it will be the end of anything when I am gone? There was a soldier once who fought one fight, and in that fight fell dead. Sad friends went after, and they brought him home, and had a brass band at his funeral, as you should have at mine, and after that a few remembered him. But he was dead. They said, and they should have their friend no more. However, there was once a starveling child, a ragged, vested little incubus, born to be cuffed and frighted out of all, capacity for childhood's happiness, who started out one day, quite suddenly, to drown himself. He ran away from home, across the clover fields and through the woods, and waited on the rock above the stream, just like a kingfisher. He might have dived or jumped or he might not, But anyhow, there came along a man who looked at him with such an unexpected friendliness and talked with him in such a common way that life grew marvelously different. What he had lately known for sullen trunks and branches and a world of tedious leaves was all transmuted, a faint forest wind that once had made the loneliest of all, sad sounds on earth made now the rarest music. And the water that had called him once to death now seemed a flowing glory. And that man, born to go down a soldier, did this thing. Not much to do? Not very much. I grant you, good occupation for a sonneteer, or for a clown, or for a clergyman, but small work for a soldier. By the way, when you are weary sometimes of your own utility, I wonder if you find occasional great comfort pondering what power a man has in him to put forth. Of all the many marvelous things that are, nothing is there more marvelous than man, said Sophocles, and he lived long ago. and earth unending, ancient of the gods, he furrows and the plows go back and forth, turning the broken mold year after year. I turned a little furrow of my own, once on a time, and everybody laughed. As I laughed afterwards and I thought not the first intelligence which we have drawn in a competitive humility as if it went forever on two legs. Had some diversion of it. I believe God's humour is the music of the spheres. But even as we draft omnipotence itself to our own image, we pervert the courage of an infinite ideal to finite resignation. You have made the cement of your churches out of tears and ashes and the fabric will not stand. The shifted walls that you have coaxed and showed, so long with unavailing compromise, will crumble down to dust and blow away, and younger dust will follow after them. Though not the faintest or the farthest world, first atom of the least that ever flew, shall be by man defrauded of the touch. God thrilled it with to make a dream for man when science was unborn. And after time, when we have earned our spiritual ears and art's commiseration of the truth no longer glorifies the singing beast or venerates the clinkwent charlatan, then shall at last come ringing through the sun, through time, through flesh, God's music of the soul. For wisdom is that music and all joy, that wisdom you may counterfeit you think the burden of it in a thousand ways. But as the bitterness that loads your tears makes dead sea swimming easy, so the gloom, the penance, and the woeful pride you keep make bitterness your buoyance of the world. And at the fairest and the frenziedest alike of your God-fearing festivals, you so compound the truth to pamper fear that in the doubtful surfeit of your faith you clamor for the food that shows eat. You call it rupture or deliverance passion or exaltation, or what most. The moment needs, but your faint-heartedness lives in it yet. You quiver and you clutch for something larger, something unfulfilled, some wiser kind of joy that you shall have, never until you learn to laugh with God. And with a calm Socratic patronage, at once half somber and half humorous, the captain reverently twirled his thumbs and fixed his eyes on something far away. Then, with a gradual gaze, conclusive, shrewd, and at the moment unendurable, for sheer beneficence, he looked at me. But the brass band, I said not quite at ease, with altruism yet. He made a kind of reminiscent little inward noise, midway between a chuckle and a laugh, and that was all his answer. Not a word of explanation or suggestion came from those tight smiling lips. And when I left, I wondered as I trod the creaking snow and had the worldwide air to breathe again. Though I had seen the tremor of his mouth and honoured the endurance of his hand, whether or not securely closeted, up there in the stived haven of his den, the man sat laughing at me, and I felt my teeth grind hard together with a quaint revulsion as I think back on it now, not only for my captain, but as well for every smug-faced failure on God's earth. Albit, I could swear at the same time that there were tears in the old fellow's eyes. I question if in tremors or in tears there be more guidance to man's worthiness than, well, say in his prayers. But oftentimes it humours us to think that we possess by some divine adjustment of our own, particular shrewd cells or something else. What others for untutored sympathy? go spirit fishing more than half their lives to catch, like cheerful sinners to catch faith. And I have not a doubt, but I assumed some egotistic attribute like this. When cautiously next morning, I reduce the fretful qualms of my novitiate for most part to an undigested pride. Only I live convinced that I regret this enterprise no more than I regret my life. And I am glad that I was born. That evening at the Chrysalis, I found the faces of my comrades all suffused with what I chose them to denominate superfluous good feeling. In return, they loaded me with titles of odd form and unexemplified significance, like Bellows Mender to Prince Eolus, Pipe Filler to the Hobos Scholiast, Breadfruit for the non-doing, with one more that I remember and a dozen more that I forget. I may have been disturbed. I do not say that I was not annoyed, but something of the same serenity that fortified me later made me feel for their skin-pricking arrows not so much, of pain as of a vigorous defect in this world's archery. I might have tried with a flat facetiousness to demonstrate what they had only snapped at and thereby made out of my best evidence no more than comfortable food for their conceit. But patient wisdom frowned on argument with a side knot for silence and I smoked a series of incurable dry pipes. While Morgan fiddled with obnoxious care some things that I detested. Killy grew, drowsed with a fond abstraction like an ass, lay blinking at me while he grinned and made remarks. The learned plunket made remarks. It may have been for smoke that I cursed cats that night, but I have rather to believe as I lay, turning, twisting, listening, and wondering between great sleepless yawns, what possible satisfaction those dead leaves could find in sending shadows to my room and swinging them like black racks on a line, that I, with a forlorn clear-headedness, was aching out probation. I had sinned in fearing to believe what I believed, and I was paying for it. Whimsical, you think, factitious. But there is no luck, no fate, No fortune for us, but the old, unswerving and inviolable price gets paid. God sells himself eternally, but never gives a crust, my friend had said. And while I watched those leaves, I heard those cats. And with half-mad minuteness analysed the captain's attitude and then my own, I felt at length as one who throws himself down restless on a couch when clouds are dark and shuts his eyes to find, when he wakes up and opens them again, what seems at first an unfamiliar sunlight in his room and in his life, as if the child in him had laughed and let him see. And then I knew some prowling superfluity of child in me had found the child in Captain Craig and had the sunlight reach him. While I slept, that thought reshaped itself to friendly dreams, and in the morning it was with me still." Through March and shifting April to the time when winter first becomes a memory, my friend the captain to my other friend's incredulous regret that such as he should ever get the talents of his talk, so fixed in my unfledged credulity, kept up the peroration of his life, not yielding at a threshold, nor, I think, too often on the stairs, he made me laugh, sometimes and then again he made me weep, almost, for I had insufficiency enough in me to make me know the truth. Within the jest and I could feel it there, as well as if it were the folded note I felt between my fingers. I had said before that I should have to go away and leave him for the season, and his eyes had shone with well-becoming interest at that intelligence. There was no mist in them that I remember, but I marked an unmistakable self-questioning and a reticence of unassumed regret. The two together made anxiety, not selfishness, I ventured. I should see no more of him for six or seven months, and I was there to tell him as I might what humorous provision we had made for keeping him locked up in Tilbury town. That finished with a few more commonplace prosaics on the certified event of my return to find him young again. I left him neither waxed, I thought, with us, not very much at odds with destiny." At any rate, save always for a look that I had seen too often to mistake or to forget, he gave no other sign. When I was in the street, I heard him shout some anxious Latin down, but a slow load of trailing rails absorbed it, and I lost whatever of good counsel or farewell it may have had for me. I turned about, and having waved a somewhat indistinct acknowledgement, I walked along. The train was late, and I was early, but the gap was filled and even crowded. Killigrew had left his pigeonholes to say goodbye, and he stood waiting by the ticket window like one green cursed of orcas. You have heard, said he. Heard what, said I. He, he, said he. Then your grey-headed beneficiary, your paragon of abstract usefulness, your Philhellenic proletariat, he, he, but what the devil is it all about? said I. What has he done? What ails him? What has he done? Eh, gods, what has he done? Man, he's a tramp, a waggles, a dead beat. I have a friend who knew him fifteen years ago, and I have his assurance now that your sequestered parasite achieved the same discreet collapse at intervals then as when first you found him. And you ask what he has done? Go find a looking glass. And you may see some recent work of his, the most remunerative and I think the most unconscious. With another man, I might have made of that last adjective a stimulating text. But Kiligrew was not the one for me to stimulate. In five defective minutes, and I knew it. So I offer no defense for keeping still, while he gave birth to phrases for my sake, nor more for staring at the changeless curves where river and railroad vanished half a mile beyond us to the north, I gave him leave to talk as long as he had words in him and watched the track and waited for the train. And I remember when the brakes had ceased, their welcome wheezing and the place was filled with yells and shadows and official smash. How he ground my patient fingers and said, Well, goodbye, old man, goodbye. And don't forget, Patrician but all waggles to the grave. The grin became a smile soon after that, and I knew that he had let the captain go, and I could read where once the jest had been, the spirit of the friend who cared the most. The train began to move, and as it moved, I felt a comfortable sudden change, all over and inside. Partly it seemed as if the strings of me had all at once gone down a tone or two. And even though it made me scowl to think so trivial, a touch had owned the strength to tighten them. It made me laugh to think that I was free. But free from what? When I began to turn, the question round was more than I could say. I was no longer vexed with Killigrew. No more was I possessed with Captain Craig. But I was eased of some restraint, I thought, not qualified by those amenities, and I should have to search the matter down for I was young and I was very keen. So I began to smoke a bad cigar that Plunkett, in his love, had given me the night before, and as I smoked, I watched the flying mirrors for a mile or so, till to the changing glimpse, now sharp, now faint. They gave me of the woodland over west, a gleam of long-forgotten, strenuous years, came back when we were red men on the trail, with Morgan for the big chief walkie-balkie, but I soon yawned out of that and set myself to face again the loud, monotonous ride that lay before me like a vista drawn of bagracks to the fabled end of things. End of poem. This recording is in the public domain.